Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography in the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This episode is brought to you by Masters of Photography, online masterclasses with the greatest photographers in the world. We'll have a special offer for you on Masters of Photography courses later in the show. We don't usually do news in this podcast, but there is a bit of news that came out on the day we're recording this, which is about 10 days before you're actually going to hear it. Um, so by the time you hear this podcast, this is going to be stale news, but this is pretty important for some people, isn't it, Jeff? It is. It is. So basically, Apple has officially announced that Aperture is going to stop working after macOS Mojave. So whatever the next version is that's going to be announced at WWDC, when that comes out in the fall, uh, Aperture will no longer work. Now, what's interesting is uh, this software was sunsetted five years ago. Apple said, we're not going to do this. We're going to get rid of iPhoto. We're going to replace it with photos. And, you know, there are all sorts of other options. However, as you might imagine, there are a lot of people who still use Aperture. And I have to admit that just like a few days ago, I was going through some old Aperture libraries trying to find some old photos. So it still works as well as it did, but um, at some point we've known this is coming. We've known this day would come because it always does for old software. And now it's time to start thinking about, okay, where are your Aperture libraries going to go if you still have Aperture libraries? You can open them in photos, then it brings everything over. Does it transfer everything? The, the original files, all your edits? I believe it does. Um, I knew you were going to ask me that. I've ne- See, I've never used Aperture. Um, uh, I used iPhoto in the past because Aperture was a paid app. It was relatively expensive, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it was. It was It was several hundred dollars? No, I think it was more like $300. Yeah. What's sort of fascinating about the history of Aperture is that Apple made a big push into this. They they were like, you know, this is going to be the thing that pro photographers are going to use. And they lined up a lot of like heavy hitters that attested to it. And like, it was a big, big deal. And then um, this was also about the time when Lightroom started to rise. And the thing is, at least, you know, my personal experience, I, I started with Aperture. I used it for several years. And when version three came out, the performance just wasn't there. And I figured, oh, okay, well, I have a, an older laptop. That's probably it. And I was due to get a new laptop that year anyway. So I bought a new one and the performance still wasn't really there. And then at one point, I think Apple just lost interest. It's been a program that works just fine. I don't think it's ever been updated except uh, right around the time when they sunsetted it. And now, finally, it's just going to end because of some limitation in the next version. Well, I think the limitation is the 32-bit, 64-bit limitation that no, we're actually, seeing I think for I, other apps. It's not. I think I think Aperture is 64-bit. We don't know yet. There's just something about it that's, that's just not going to work. So that suggests that in the next version of macOS, there's going to be some sort of image framework in the operating system that Aperture may not be compatible with. And this could be something that Apple's going to present uh, in June at the Worldwide Developers Conference. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the case. And that they're giving an early warning about Aperture now because there are professionals using this who may need some months to resolve to decide what they're going to use to replace it. Oh, yeah. Whether they go to Photos or Lightroom or whatever they use. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we were talking to Nick Bott from Gentleman Coders, he mentioned to us that he still uses Aperture on a regular basis. And he's the guy who wrote Raw Photos or sorry, uh, Raw Power. So, um, you know, a a lot of people still use it. Um, And, you know, there are ways 
to migrate beyond it, Apple put out a little tech note. We'll we'll put a link in the show notes, giving you some suggestions. I humbly will mention that I wrote a book, Take Control of Your Digital Photos, that has a lot of extensive step-by-steps because I knew that people are going to be looking for a way to get away from Aperture or iPhoto. And you know what? There'll be a link in the show notes to that book too. So let's get to our main topic. And you suggested this a while ago, and I'm so happy that you know about this because I don't. (laughs) This is, since we've gone digital and we don't use film anymore, we don't have to worry about film stocks and the ASA values of films and how they're processed and all that. But we do have to worry about memory cards. It's easy to think that any memory card is more or less the same as any other memory card, other than capacity. Um, But there are lots of differences between memory cards. And I only recently discovered this because when I got my X-Pro2 a little more than a year ago, um, I found that it has two memory card slots, one of them the normal speed, which I assume is a much faster speed than cameras five or ten years ago, and the other one a higher speed. And what this meant is that previously, when I was trying to do photos in burst mode, uh, my camera would shoot a few and then start going slower and slower uh, because the buffer in the camera was filled and because it couldn't write quickly enough to the memory card. And I bought a faster memory card, and now I can use burst mode uh, much more efficiently. And it's not something I use a lot, but it's something I wanted to be able to use. So let's start with the basics. What is a memory card? Is it just like a miniature floppy disk? Yes, that's exactly it. They've taken a floppy disk and folded it so it fits in the tiny little card. Oh, so this is a Samsung thing. (laughs) It's a Samsung thing. Yes, exactly. So basically, all of the the memory cards that are out there are it's solid state memory, kind of like a USB stick. Or like an SSD in your computer. Or like an SSD in your computer. And primarily, there are two kinds uh, for for most digital cameras. Some older cameras and some like high-end professional cameras still use the compact flash format, which is sort of bigger and chunkier. And at one point, that's where you would get a lot of the performance. So the other kind is an SD card, secure digital card. And it's probably a little bit larger than your thumb, uh, very thin. And the idea, of course, is it because it's smaller, it can go into cameras that don't have to be as big and bulky. And like Kirk said, you can put in, you know, two cards into one camera and they come in a variety of capacities and speeds. What really drew us to this topic today is let's say you go to Amazon right now and you say, I need a memory card for my camera you're going to be presented with a ton of different options and it's immediately confusing. So last year I wrote an article for Macworld that was comparing SD card readers and specifically readers that had USB-C connections that you could plug into a modern uh, MacBook Pro. And when I was doing my research for it, I knew that there were lots of different speeds and lots of different markings Um, And if you've looked into this, it just gets confusing really quickly. It was so confusing. I wrote a separate article just to use as a handy cheat sheet to what all this stuff means. So I'm going to run through a lot of that right now. Of course, we'll have links in the show notes. Okay, but I first have a question because there are two sizes of SD cards. There's the sort of thumb size and there's the smaller thumbnail size that you have to put in a thumb sized adapter. 
What's the difference? That's right. I, I totally forgot. So th there's also a micro SD card, and that is basically the exact same thing, just in a smaller form factor. And they use those for even smaller cameras, like a lot of action cameras, uh, drones, something where you want to store a lot of data, but you really don't have the space for a regular card. Okay. So I'm looking at my fast SD card. So this is a SanDisk Extreme Pro, and I chose this perhaps after reading a wire cutter review of SD cards. It says 300 megabytes per second. I believe there's a little tiny asterisk next to that, and there's nothing else that says anything. When they say that, that's not the write speed, is it? That's the read speed, because I have another card, a Samsung Evo, and it says 80 read and 20 write. So when you look at a card, what's important is really the write speed, because that's how fast you're going to get pictures onto the card from your camera. The read speed is how quickly you're going to get them off the camera onto your computer, which generally isn't that urgent. The write speed is more important if you want to shoot multiple pictures or in burst mode. Exactly. And there are some cards that they will not write the write speed on the card because, of course, write speeds are generally slower across the board. And they want you to see that, oh, this is a 280 megabyte per second card. And you're like, ooh, that sounds great. That sounds much better than the 95. And that doesn't mean that that's, that's the speed that you're getting when you're writing to it. So when you're doing your research, make sure you look for the write speed. And that won't always be on the card itself. You'll also run into a couple of different types of SD cards, not just sizes. So, for example, um, and, and a lot of this has to do with, like, the age of, of the specs. So, like, you'll have an SD card, and just plain SD cards can store up to, like, 2 gigabytes. That was great back in the day, but 2 gigs is sort of laughable now. Um, you will also run into SDHC, so high-capacity cards, and those go up to 32 gigs, which also great in the day, still pretty great, but sometimes you want even more. So anything above that, up to like two terabytes even, are SDXC, which means extended capacity cards. What's easy about this is when you're looking for capacity, you don't really have to worry too much about whether it's HC or XC because you just know that if it's a 64 gig card, it's going to be XC most of the time. Okay, so we can ignore that. Now, I'm on the SanDisk website, and I'm looking at the Extreme Pro and here's how they describe it. They call it a SanDisk Extreme Pro SD UHS-2 card, up to 300 slash 260 megabytes per second read-write speed, video speed U3. Mm -hmm. It's Pro SHDC and SDXC cards that deliver uncompromising <laughs> results to professionals and view form factor sdxc but we just went into that it's all just and it's all just just word salad so when i look at the card on the front it says mine is an sdhc because it's a 32 gigabyte and there's a little bucket with the number three in it and then there's a circle with the number 10 in it are these like lottery numbers <laughs> uh no those are, are are like further speed classes so that three in the u that indicates the uhs rating which is ultra high speed i love how all the names are like it's ultra it's super it's amazing <laughs> and it, it, that means that basically that card can do uh 30 megabytes per second for um, 
data transfer. This has something to do with video speed. The video speed is actually a different thing. No, well, okay, so on the, on the SanDisk site, UHS Speed Class 3 U3 designates a performance option designed to support real-time video recording with UHS-enabled host devices. But it doesn't say if that's 1080p or 4K or what sort of video. Part of this confusion is, so you have that U3, which is a, a UHS speed class of 30 megabytes per second. Um, you also have uh, perhaps a 10 with a C or an, and, and and that's like another speed class. All, all my cards have 10s on them, mm-hmm. regardless of their actual speed. So uh, there must have been at some point a number, a numerical marker that reached its maximum of 10 and now we're beyond that. So they don't go any further, but they leave it there. Right. So this Samsung card, if you remember, I said I have one that says 80 megabytes per second read and 20 write. So that's four times as fast read. On the SanDisk, it says up to 300 megabytes per second read and up to 260 write. So there's not a difference of four to one as there is with the older Samsung card. Right. Something very interesting about that card. If you turn it over and look on the back, you'll see that it has two rows of pins. That's right. This is key. If you want to get those those high, high speeds, you want to look for a UHS-2, as in the Roman numeral 2, UHS-2 type of card. And what that indicates is it has two rows of contacts. So it's actually transferring data over more contact points, and that is speeding up the the, the transfer. However, not all cameras can support that. Right. And as I said, my X-Pro2 has two slots. One supports that, and the other one doesn't. Exactly. And some cameras don't support it at all. Some cameras have, like, two slots that support it. Now, if you put one of these into a camera that doesn't support it, it's still going to work. It's just going to use the bottom set of, of contacts and you'll get your s- sort of slower read speeds. You won't get any benefit from it. Right. And just like if you put an older card into the faster slot, it'll still work because one set of those pins lines up in any slot and the second set lines up in the faster slot. Exactly. So what you don't want to do is say, I want to get the super fast card and you know you may spend $100 for a 32 gig UHS-2 card and you'll put it in your camera and you won't be getting that performance and it would have been basically just wasted money. Okay, my head hurts. Let's take a break <laughs> and we'll come back and we'll try and start giving some recommendations for people as to how to select a card. Masters of Photography is a unique online learning platform that brings together some of the world's most acclaimed photographers, the Masters. You can enjoy an unprecedented insight into the way these photographers work during intimate lessons that capture their knowledge, ethos, and philosophy. I've taken the Masters of Photography course with Joel Myrowitz, one of my favorite photographers, and I was impressed by his passion for photography and his desire to transmit his knowledge to others. With more than five hours of video and 34 lessons, Joel Morowitz discusses technique, inspiration, and his career, and gives some practical tips about shooting in the street, taking portraits, and even still-life photography. I strongly recommend this course with Joel Morowitz, and Masters of Photography has a special offer for PhotoActive listeners. Get 5% off any course with the code PHOTOACTIVE. Go to mastersof.photography and enter the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE, or use the link in our show notes. That's mastersof.photography. I really enjoyed this course, and I think you will too. 
Okay, that was all very confusing. It's not Jeff's fault. It's the industry's fault. Quite frankly, I think the industry would be much better off um, normalizing this. I mean, it is normalized in certain ways, but it's not consumer friendly. It seems like this is something made for professionals and they'll understand all these little things. Oh, yeah, I got this card. It's a XDC Fast Number 2 Circle 10 C3, whatever. I would bet that actually a lot of professionals don't understand don't, all of it anyway. Yeah. Just be, I mean, just because there, there's so much. I mean, I, I think a lot of professionals will just be like, give me the quickest and the fastest and my gear probably handles it. For the rest of us, you have to have at least a rudimentary knowledge of what all these little symbols mean because, of course, a lot of it is marketing. A lot of it is, you know, made to make a card look faster than it is. Okay, so I think one of the first questions when someone's looking for SD cards is what size? You could pick the largest card available, which is 128, 256. I think there are even one terabyte cards that are starting to be um, sold right now. Um, but how much? How many photos do you actually need? So my X-Pro2, its raw files are about 50 megabytes, and its JPEGs are about 12 to 15 megabytes. So if I shoot raw and JPEG, that's 65 megabytes on average per photo. In 32 gigabytes, I can put, I don't know, 400, 800 photos. I'm, I'm, I'm actually looking for a website that will calculate this, but it's not that simple to find because of different sizes in each one. How often are you going to need to shoot hundreds of photos? If, if you're not a professional doing weddings um, and if you're not shooting video, and I think video is a different thing. You need the biggest card no matter what. For, for people like us, just average photographers, we're never going to shoot that many photos. Although, if you're on vacation, you might be shooting a lot of photos. Although, and I know you're waiting <laughs> to answer my question. Although, if you're on vacation, I would say use a different card every day just in case. Well, see, now I don't need to say anything, but I will. <laughs> Although, that's actually a really key point because you're going to go to Amazon and you're going to be like, oh, I can get this 128 gig card and that'll last me the entire week and I'll be great. And, you know, yeah, it's going to cost a little bit more money, but then I don't have to worry about it. Well, the problem there is you're putting everything onto one card. So it's much better, in my opinion, to get more smaller capacity cards that will cost less than to put everything onto giant capacity cards. So I just bought... Uh, finally, finally, I just bought a uh, Fuji X-T3. Yay! Yay, finally! Um, and I bought two 64 gig cards to add to my like current arsenal of cards, which, you know, to be honest, since I've been using them over the a number of years, I've got, you know, 32 gig cards, I've got 62s, I've got 16s. But, you know, I, I wanted something that I could... You know, start off fresh also because this camera has two card slots. So I want something that'll fit into both and have the same write speeds. Even when I'm out on a photo workshop, I've definitely come close to running out of space. But it's much better for me to have a few backups than to just put everything onto one card. Because what if you lose your camera? What if uh, you lose your, your, your luggage or something? Again, we we go back to backups so often on this, but it's such an important topic. Yeah. Um, it's much better to to spread them out, and especially because, for example, so the cards that I got were uh, it was a SanDisk Extreme Pro, it was a UHS one card uh, that was sixty four gigs, and the price was like twenty bucks, like twenty bucks for sixty four gigs of 
of storage, which blows my yeah, mind. but it's just a UHS-1. I not know. Fast. Mine, I'm just looking on Amazon. <laughs> I bought this in August 2018. It cost me 52 pounds, so let's say $70. For your UHS-2? UHS-2, 32 gigs, 300 megabytes per second. Now, if you go up to 64, you're going to pay... 99 if you go to 128 you're going to pay 197 so the price isn't you don't get much of a discount as you get a bigger card it seems to be that the price is fixed but let's just talk about size again because just before we started i imported some pictures into my imac and i even sent you a great cat photo because we're going to in the future do an episode about pet photography so i'm getting geared up for it and i have 119 files now i'm thinking there's about 50 raw files and a bunch of JPEGs, because in my Fuji camera, sometimes I do raw conversions to different JPEGs. And all of that takes up 3.5 gigabytes. So I could put at that, I could have, well, let's say multiply by, I could have 450 raw plus JPEG. So does anyone need more than 32 gigabytes unless they're professionals or if they're not doing weddings and, you know, millions of cat photos? This is exactly one of those cases where it depends on how you're shooting and what you're shooting. For example, I was out shooting in the Palouse area of eastern Washington, and we happened upon some crop dusters. They fly their planes eight feet off the ground. It's amazing to watch. And so we were at a relatively safe distance, and I was just firing off at the peak burst rate that I could, just trying to get anything. Now, most of those photos just got thrown away because, you know, it's like half of an airplane or, or what have you. But that was a case when I wanted to shoot the burst mode as fast as I can. I used up a ton of storage and then I was I was glad to have the capacity. Otherwise, you know, I would get to the end and then I'd be done. And have the faster card to do burst mode. You were going to do a live test to see how fast your burst mode works on the camera. So yeah. the, if you have burst mode on a camera, the way to check if your camera bursts faster than your memory card can write is just hold down the shutter and you're going to hear the burst mode. How long does it go before it goes from click, 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 click to click, click, click? So let's do a live test. Okay, I timed it earlier. It was about five seconds. So this this is what it's going to sound like. Hopefully you're able to hear there the difference between its peak burst mode and then it slowed down and then it slowed down just a little bit more. And what's happening is part of that is the camera's buffer. So it has an internal set of memory. And then part of that is the speed at which it's writing to the card. And at some point, the card just becomes a bottleneck. Okay, so I'm going to try mine now. Okay. Mine has has a fast burst mode of eight frames per second. It didn't go much further than yours, and that was with the fast card. Yeah, that's because you have an old camera now. I know, I know. (laughs) It was probably released about two years ago. Oh, see, that's ancient, says the guy who who had a a five-year-old camera up until last week. Okay, here's same camera. Uh, This is my X-T3, and this is in an even older 95 megabyte per second Extreme Pro uh, 32 gig card. Now, there wasn't a whole lot of difference there. When I timed it earlier, it was about a second. Like, I could get, like, another second more out of the faster card. Are you doing RAW plus JPEG? 
Uh, in this case, I was testing just RAW. Oh, so I was testing RAW plus JPEG. Oh, well, yours is going to be like super fast well, now. So I'm going to have to find how to change mine to just RAW, and we're going to do this here. So I'm in RAW only, and I'm going to go back to eight frames per second. Ready? Ready. Now, what's interesting is you can hear that it's still doing a little bit faster than one per second. So you can just keep holding the shutter and your burst mode will be a little bit slower, but you'll still be getting your burst. You will. Although actually, and again, I'm sure this depends on the camera. You'll also notice that your little activity light is probably still blinking because it still has to finish those those operations. So you might do a big, long burst mode. And while it's still writing to the card, you may not be able to, to take any new photos after that for, you know, a, Okay, but a most of us don't need to do an 8 or a 10 or a 12 frame per second burst mode. So I've put mine to 3 frames per second now, RAW and JPEG, and here's what happens. It's going to just keep going at three frames per second. Yeah, because it can because keep that up. was about the speed that it was slowing down to before. So if you want to do burst mode and you don't need the fastest burst mode, don't set it to the fastest burst mode. Set it to the second one. So in my case, it's either eight or three, and then you'll still be able to take pictures for a longer period of time without worrying about things like the buffer. Exactly. And, you know, I'll say if you don't think that you're going to be shooting in burst mode very often, yes, it's great to have the faster card. But you don't really necessarily need it. And to dip briefly into video, you'll see in the articles that we mentioned, there are also video speed ratings. And so, for example, uh, the card that I had that, that I just bought, the 64 gig card, has a, a V30 rating, which I believe will get you a good data rate for 1080p video. And I think the recommendation for shooting 4K video is a V60 rating. Basically, that just means because 4K video is so bandwidth intensive, it's going to be able to record that just fine without it overloading the, the memory or the buffer and then getting in your way. Okay, so a couple of takeaways. Look for the size that you need, but don't bother going buying the really expensive biggest card. It's better to buy more smaller cards. It's not that much cheaper for the bigger cards. Yes. Don't worry too much about the speed unless you really want to use burst mode or you want to shoot video. Right. And, oh, here's a question. I've read that some people, every time they transfer their photos from their SD card to their computer and put the card back in the camera, they reformat it every time. What's the deal with that? I think that is a good general rule of thumb. The reason is twofold. One, if you're letting the camera format the card, then the camera basically sets it up the way the camera wants it in terms of file structure, underlying file system, and all of that. Yes, but do you need to do it every time? It's not a bad idea because... If you remember how, how files and stuff are stored on disks, um, when you delete something, it doesn't actually go away. That section of the memory is marked as deleted and marked as available to be rewritten. Now, I'm going to give a caveat to this because if you suspect that you might run into problems, you might want to erase instead of format, and then you can use recovery utilities to get old images right. off. But Right. If something is, has rewritten over that spot, then you may not be able to recover it. As a rule of thumb, I always just reformat it because it's kind of a cleaner blank slate to start with. 
okay i think we've gone far enough i'm still confused but i'm going to listen to this episode <laughs> after it's edited to try and understand this a little bit more i'm fairly confident that the cards i have are okay i mean they don't change the color of my photos they don't you know the resolution is fine and all that and we don't have to worry about that like we did with film um I did feel much more comfortable spending a little bit more for this faster card, knowing that I might need it and that it gives me a bit more breathing room. But again, I'm looking on Amazon. The top selling card here is £7.50 for a 32 gigabyte, 80 megabyte per second sand disk. And even to go to the next speed up, 170 and 64 gigabytes, only £23. So they're not that expensive unless you go for the really fast, really big ones. Buy a bunch. Check Amazon's daily deals. They often have deals on SD cards. You know, all of that is exactly the point that I hope people get from this. Yes, there are faster cards out there. And if you think you're going to need them, buy them. But if your camera can take a UHS-2 card, buy one or two of those. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like the highest capacity. So that when you do run into a situation and you have the opportunity to switch into something faster and you want to shoot in burst mode or shoot a lot of video, then you have that option. But, you know, for most people, for most shooting... You know, spending 20 bucks for a card instead of 100 bucks for a card, you're going to be perfectly happy. It's going to work great. You don't have to make that expense unless you just really want to sort of future proof your setup. And just going back to burst mode one last time, you you explained a very good example when the crop dusters were flying over. In our last episode, we had Mari Reed talking about bird photography. And you're going to want burst mode if you're doing bird photography, wildlife photography, maybe even when your kids are running around if you want to catch them. So it's probably worthwhile doing some tests, try a couple different cards, they're not that expensive, and see what meets your needs when it comes to burst mode, if you do shoot anything with burst mode. If not, pretty much any card is fine. Absolutely. Time for our snapshots. What have you got this week, Jeff? So uh, as I mentioned, I just bought a, a brand new camera, and so I also have a book to go along with it. It's a book from our friends at Rocky Nook. The title is Fuji X Secrets. Now, this won't apply to anybody who doesn't shoot Fuji, but as you know, Kirk and I both shoot Fuji. And the author is Rico Firstinger. I hope I've said that right, Rico. Sorry. And basically, like, this is the next step beyond the manual of your camera, which is from the field advice, what things are important, what settings mean that you may not know initially. It's it's actually like, like an easy read. It comes through as 142 different tips about um, setting up the different autofocus modes and what they mean. And I'm finding it to be really useful because my last camera, the X-T1, I got from a friend and he had set up everything uh, the way he liked it before. And quite honestly, like all the settings were great. So I didn't really dig deep into everything that the camera could do. But now that I have a new X-T3 that is, is just the default from scratch, uh, I can set it up the way I want. So the book again, Fuji X Secrets by Rico Firstinger. And um, I know that there are other of these sort of secrets books that Rocky Nook offers for different camera manufacturers. So worth checking out. Yeah, it's really important to... RTFM, read the Fuji manual. And if you don't read the Fuji manual, read one of these books because the Fuji manual is not very well organized. But when I switched from Olympus to Fuji, obviously things are different. And if you're going to be switching from Canon or Nikon to Fuji or Fuji to Canon or Nikon to whatever it is, all the settings are different. They have different names. They're organized differently. And it's a good idea to read how it works because different cameras approach 
things differently. Like auto ISO is different on one camera and another. Fuji has film simulations. Other cameras use things that they might call scenes or other ways of creating JPEGs. So it's really useful to read these. And, you know, if you're spending, I don't know, a thousand, fifteen hundred bucks on a camera, spend the money to buy a book that's going to explain it to you and take some time to understand it. Absolutely. Kirk, what do you have for a snapshot this week? I think that we've talked in the past about presets that people make for different apps to take a photo, click a button, apply your look. And I'm not really a big fan of presets, but I was writing something this week about making black and white photos in Luminar, so taking your color photos and converting them to black and white. And you can obviously use the black and white edit panel to tweak the colors and all that, and there are plenty of options. But Luminar also uses what they call looks. Now, just some quick terminology. Most apps either talk about filters or presets, which are the same thing. Luminar calls them looks. Luminar's filters are the different things you see in the right-hand sidebar of the edit panel. And this could be the one that has exposure, brightness, and contrast. It could be curves. It could be levels, etc. So they're calling those filters, and they're calling these looks because the looks sound cool. If you go into Luminar and you go in the view menu, and then you click hide show looks panel, a little panel comes up in the bottom, and this has their presets, filters. Um, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> and if you click the little menu button, you'll see that there are a number of Luminar Looks collections. If you click Get More, this is going to take you to the Luminar website where you can download a bunch of free looks slash presets and you can buy others. But one of the ones that is free is called Tonality Mega B&W Pack. Now, Luminar had made a standalone app called Tonality, which I think they no longer support, uh, which was just for converting from color to black and white. And it looks like they've taken all of the looks slash presets from Tonality and made them available for free download to add to Luminar. As I said, I'm not a fan of presets, filters, and all that, but when you do have these, you can look at them and you can see what the adjustments are and you can learn how the adjustments work to give a specific photo, a specific look slash preset application, et cetera. I know that's really confusing. I wish all these companies would use the same terminology, looks. I think looks sounds good because of the alliteration. It's a luminar look. It's not a luminar preset. Yeah, and don't even get me started on Affinity Photos personas for the different <laughs> um, editing versions or editing modes and all that. Anyway, if you use luminar, check this out. There are a bunch of free looks presets. And since I like black and white, I found this quite interesting to download. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in the show at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or in Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast app. Thanks again for listening.